Morning. Morning to you, uh, all of you watching online as well. Last week, if you were here in this, you know, firm foundation series that we are almost finished with, a couple more weeks, we talked about the second coming of Christ. So I just say that in case you weren't here, I'm kind of building off of where we were last week. The second coming of Jesus, which is, you might say, the, uh, I don't know, the ulti- penultimate of, of what happens in the scripture. There's one last thing, but certainly much of the scriptures, I mentioned this last week, you know, hundreds of verses just in the New Testament that talk about the blessed hope, <clears throat> called the blessed hope, the day of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. This morning, we're going to talk about the final scene, right? What the second coming leads to. The final scene, the final two chapters, really, we'll just look at a part of one in the Bible in the subject of eternity, okay? Eternity, what happens after uh, Jesus sets things right. The Bible, think about it, is really one long story about the rescue and the renewal of the world that God created all the way back there in Genesis chapter 2. It's one long story. And in the end, we'll look a little bit at it this morning, heaven and hell are not the main point. We'll talk about both of them. But heaven and hell are not the main point. Sometimes we think about that. You know, you grow up in a church, you know it's going to heaven, going to hell. They're not the main point, nor are they the final destination, as we'll see from these verses. The story ends in a new earth where life as God always intended it to be lived, going back to Genesis 1 and 2, is finally and fully experience. Let me say that sentence one more time. In the end, heaven and hell are not the point. Heaven and hell are not the destination. Where it all ends is a new heaven and a new earth coming down. It ends on a new earth where people are now living the way God intended them to live finally and forever uh, in what we call eternity. Let's look at the article okay, that we have been looking at our articles of faith. It says this. We believe in the bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust, the everlasting blessedness of the saved and the conscious everlasting punishment of the lost, everlasting eternal. So three things I want to say in this message, time that I have about eternity, everlasting life. The world that was, the world that's coming, and the king of the world, the world that was, the world that's coming, and the king of the world. Our text, or at least our main text, Revelation chapter 21, you have a copy of the Bible, verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 21, there's only 22 chapters, so we're at the very, very end. Verses 1 through 8, follow along as I read the Apostle John. Then I saw, it's a vision, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now let me say a few words. I think they're... Uh, 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 required here about the book of Revelation. We're not studying the book of Revelation, but we just, our text is from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation believed, and I think throughout the course of history, believed to be the very last book written. So it happens to be the last one in the Bible, but the Bible doesn't always work out that way. Chronologically, though, we believe it's the very last book written by the last surviving apostle, the apostle John, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. It is believed he was exiled to an island called Patmos, kind of a persecution thing. We'll get to that in a second. And he lived a very, he outlived the other apostles. Jesus even mentions this in John 21, if you remember that passage, that John would sort of outlive the others. He does outlive the others. And it's believed he, at the end of his life, or near the end of his life, when he's on this island, when the church was under great persecution, he writes this book. Now, it's important to mention that because the book is written, when you think about the book of Revelation, to a church that was under great persecution. You might even say a, a church that kind of was under siege of a kind. By the time the book of Revelation was written, we know some of this without uh, historical fact, um, James, the brother of John, remember the Sons of Thunder? He'd been killed by Herod. Uh, Paul, very likely, we don't know this from the scriptures, but outside them, he was uh, beheaded. Peter, we know, was crucified, not from in the scriptures, although Jesus tips his hand. Many of the apostles already not only died, but not in a nursing home, they were martyred, and many others. We hear about, and in this season, we know this from history, a couple emperors' names you might know, Nero, a lot of the persecution happened under Nero, and near the end of the first century was a guy named Domitian both known as people who did, um, they were cruel and even vicious at times with the persecution. Now, the book of Revelation, again, it's written to people who are in this context. We talked about it last week. Oh, Lord, when are you going to come? And while they're waiting for the promised Lord Jesus to come, things are going from bad to worse, and there's persecution, and there's difficulty, and there's economic strain, and there's even death, okay, martyrdom. And so the book is being written, first of all, the topic so under the inspiration of God, you might say God's saying, listen, I want to give my people both in the first century as the church is under persecution, but the church throughout the course of history, including our very own day, I want to encourage these friends who are living in a broken, fallen world that in many ways is organized against God. So some part of the book of Revelation, the topic, although there's a lot of judgment in the book, you might say it's good judgment. In other words, the bad guys are getting their due, in a manner of speaking. There's ultimately beauty and glory and, and eternity. God says, I, for the topic, I want to write a book that's going to uplift people who are in a difficult place. But even the, um, the nature, you might say the genre of the book of Revelation, 
Okay? The Bible is all true, I believe. All, it's all inspired by God from beginning to end. It's all true, but it's all told in different ways. There's poetry, there's narrative, there's proverbs, there's psalms, there's stories. Is, is, is the parable true? Well, it didn't actually happen, but it's re- re- reflecting a truth, right? So it's all true. One of the genres is called apocalyptic literature. Fancy name, which just means literature that is signs and visions and, and things that are that are stylistically almost like poetry would be that are beyond our imagination. And it's in you see this not only in the book of Revelation, you see it in the book of Daniel, you see it in the book of Joel, you see it in middle chapters of the book of Isaiah, where all of a sudden it'll go to regular kind of narrative to these wild visions. But the book of Revelation, you see it in Technicolor, almost the whole book is that way. Now, why is it doing that? Writers would say this, because not only the truth, not only the topic, second coming and the end of the world, but even the, the, the style is trying to match the grief, the sadness, and even aspire to the hopes of a people that are, that are hurting and in trouble. It's almost like you'd say to a kid, I'm just making this up, someone who just lost their, you know, lost their this or didn't get into, the, you know, into school or, or hurt, scraped their knee or, or their friend was hurt or, or, or whatever you're trying. Let me paint a picture for your, you know, a three-year-old, a five-year-old to say, let me, let me tell you what it's like to, uh, you know, to, to live in a, in, a, in a beautiful place. Let me tell you where we're going to Disneyland or whatever. There's a sense in which... Apocalyptic literature, it's this hyper-stylized imagery that's trying to lift people's hearts and minds to something beyond uh, what they know. It's true, but that's part of why the book is written the way it's written. I say that because I think it'll make sense as we go on. Okay, Eternity, point number one. The world as we know it is passing away. Both in this very short passage, but in these last couple chapters, he's, doing both, he's going to talk both about the world that's on its way out, right? And the world that's on its way in. The world as we know it is passing away. God is opening up a window, particularly in the last handful of chapters of the Revelation, but not only there. A limited window to tell you how the world is going to end. What's going to happen? As we know it, if you are a Bible believer, maybe some of you are, some of you aren't, you take the word of God, you believe it, you believe it's God's word, it's his revelation. If you are, this morning, then this is what you would believe. Everything in this world, everything except for the people, will be burned up in the end. Every chair, every car, every house, every building, every monument, every mountain, every sea, every skyscraper, everything in this world will be burned up. Nothing is permanent. It will be gone forever. We read this last week, 2 Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come. That's another way of talking about the second coming. It's an extended period of judgment and ultimately Um, new life. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus' words, but um, paraphrased uh, also by Peter, or, or used by Peter. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth, watch it, and everything done in it will be laid bare. Okay? Everything. The physical world is not ultimate. Only God is ultimate. You might say God is ultimate reality and he will bring all things, the Bible says, to a final and spectacular end. I'm talking about the world as we know it. But more important, if you remember what we just read, than the physical world passing away, I'm talking about the inanimate objects, the order of the world 
will pass away. Listen again carefully. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be, what do I mean by the order? Or it's, it's what does John mean? There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things, say, will be gone away. Much more important than the loss of the mountains and the water and the skyscrapers and the boat. Much more important is the order of things. The world that we live in. Evil is interlaced in everything that we do. We're like fish in water in that order of things that's mourning and crying of all kinds and death itself, that order will be wiped away. If you're a note taker, Revelation 22, we're not gonna go there, but verse three says this, the curse of sin, which is where this all started, this mess that we live in, is going to be lifted. See, it's hard for us to imagine that. It's like almost like I say to you, you know, imagine a world without oxygen. It doesn't make any sense to you. You're saying, Rob, that doesn't make any sense. But in a manner of speaking, for you to imagine a world without the stain of sin, without the presence of evil, I'm not just talking about, you know, in, in here and there in parts of the world. I'm talking about in your, all the way down to your own life, Right? Uh, uh, Solzhenitsyn said that, you know, that he was on that, uh, marooned himself in a form of persecution. He said, I came to, to the place where I realized that the, the line of good and evil runs all the way through the human heart, every last person, okay? Evil infiltrates every area, every part of our lives, but we don't know it because that's what we've been living forever and ever. But ultimately, that will come to an end. The curse will be listed. Now, it also includes this judgment. Listen very carefully. It also includes all who have rejected God's gracious offer as it has been appeared throughout the calm course of human history. Okay, we just read about that. Let's read another verse. 2 Thessalonians. This will happen. Now I'm about the second coming in the day of the Lord. We talked about it a little bit last weekend. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I would assume that means they've heard it. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people, to be marveled at, to be marveled at, among those who have believed, perhaps you, me, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. I think it would be hard to find a more stunning statement in all of Scripture. Leave that up there than that one. But I read it because it's not my words, not my ideas. It's God's. Could there be a more stunning statement in all of Scripture? But let me say something that's very important. What is being said here? What is hell? What is the lake of fire? What is the second death? What are these things? What does it mean? C.S. Lewis. There is no need to be worried by, by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend, time, spend eternity playing harps. Anyone ever tell you that? I'd like to go to heaven, but I don't think so. You know, Disneyland sounds more interesting, you know. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. All scriptural imagery, harps, crowns, gold, you could add, I might add, fire, is, of course, merely symbolic, an attempt to express the inexpressible. 
What is hell? What is, what is the second death? Okay, what is the burning sulfur? I'm not sure exactly what it all means, but I know what the image represents. We just read it in 2 Thessalonians. These people, after he talks about the blazing fire and the everlasting destruction, they are shut out from the presence of the Lord. Let me tell you what I do know. Whatever the actual experience is, what it means to be in the lake of fire, what it means to go to hell, is to be shut out from the presence of God. That's the unimaginative um, words of First Thess- Second Thessalonians. And see, you and I don't understand what that means. We, we think that's nothing because we don't understand the water that we're swimming in. Even in this broken world full of, of, of troubles and problems and sin and destruction and corruption and international turmoil and, and, and personal turmoil and cancer and everything that you and I live with, even in this world, the Bible says in that very same book that the Holy Spirit of God is in the world today, has been in the world all, all through all time, Old Testament, New Testament, restraining evil in the world. As bad as it is in the Ukraine, as bad as it is in parts of the world, as bad as it is in my life and your life, it's nothing compared to what it would be if the spirit of Almighty God was not in the world and in your life. He is restraining the world. He's holding back the kind of, uh, the, the potential for evil, and none of us have even lived one minute in a world, no matter how much hell you and I feel like we've experienced, we've not lived one minute in a world that isn't absent from the presence of God. That's what hell is. Okay, that's what hell is, according to the Bible. At least, it's at least that. C.S. Lewis again. I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. What does that mean? It simply means this. As I look at some of the verses, including the one we read, that said they do not obey the gospel of God, that people ultimately go to this place because they choose to go. Listen, people don't go to hell because they've cheated on their taxes or they cheated on their spouse not recommending either one of those things, by the way, okay? But that's not why ultimately people go to hell. They go to hell because they do not obey the gospel. They say, no, thank you. In the end, they say, I'll do things my own way. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. The sin below all sin is pride to say, I don't need you. I'll do it my way. If you're a note taker, Revelation 16, 9 says, even in the midst of all the judgment, all the craziness that's going on in the judgments that's being poured out in the book of Revelation, There's an eternal angel, Revelation 14, that comes out and says, in the midst of all this chaos, you can still turn around. There's free water of life. God is is gracious in the midst of this. And then in Revelation 16, it says, but still people refuse to repent. They said, no, thank you, even in the midst of a kind of aggressive judgment. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. Without a doctrine, listen carefully, of judgment in hell, you're left with a Christianity that has no real gospel. What do I mean by that? There would be no reason for Jesus Christ, this is the gospel, to have lived a perfect life. See, I've never lived a perfect life, even a half a day, right? So Jesus Christ lived a perfect life for you. This is part of the gospel. He didn't just die for you, he lived for you. 
He, he crossed every uh, T, he dotted every I, he lived a perfect life in conformance to the Old Testament law, to the law of God. Then, at the end of his life, he submitted himself to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He lived a perfect life, he died a sacrificial death for your sin and for my sin. There would have been no reason for either one of those things if God the Father in the end was just going to look the other way and just say, I'm going to forget this whole thing anyway, what would be the point of the gospel? But see, God, some people think God should do that, but the reason God doesn't just decide to look the other way is because we have a very narrow, uh, wrong-sized view of God. God can't look the other way because he's holy. Listen carefully. The fact that some of us think eternal punishment is harsh makes God look less fair, shows how little we know, how little we really know of what the Bible says about evil and what it says about the holiness of God. Okay? Are you in this word? Okay, there's maybe 20 more habit journals. I want to see them gone today, okay, as you walk out this door. The The fact that some of us think eternal punishment is harsh, makes God look less fair, shows how little we know about what the Bible says about evil and about the holiness of God. Okay? The old world, the world we know is passing away. Second, a new world is coming that is beyond your imagination. I don't think we've gotten this message either, friends. A new world is coming that is beyond your imagination. Listen, the Bible teaches, let me say this very quickly, I want you to get into a sermon, that, because I said the, the destination, the point of life is in heaven or hell, it isn't. But if I died today, if you die today, if you're a Christian, your mom, your friend, your neighbor, the Bible does say you go to heaven. So I'm not saying heaven doesn't exist. I'm saying that's not the ultimate end of the story. A couple quick verses, I'm paraphrasing. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today, not, you know, millennia from now, today you will be with me in paradise. I said to you a month ago, I think, that our theology, the Bible's theology, not Rob's theology or Brown Cross, but the historic uh, theology of the Bible, says that Jesus Christ today has a human body. He's forever and ever human. That's the amazing thing about the incarnation. It wasn't just an act. It wasn't a play. It wasn't a moment. It wasn't a scene in a movie. He's forever and ever human today. Jesus Christ is, is in a bodily form just like he was when he rose from the dead. Well, he's not in this room. He's not in the Middle East. He's in what's called the third heaven, okay? The third heaven. It's not my language, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. What does that mean? Heaven's used hundreds of times, three or 400 times in the New Testament. Most of it's talking about what's called the first heaven. That's the sky. See today when you walk out. The second heaven is, is interplanetary space. You see with a telescope. That's what most of them are talking about. The third heaven, only mentioned once, it's seen a few times, but mentioned by name in 2 Corinthians 12, is where God dwells, even though God is omnipresent, he's in this room, his command center, you might say, is in this place called heaven, and that's where Jesus is today. So if you die today, if I die today, it is true that you go to heaven. But in the end, we just read these verses, heaven comes down in the form of a city, filled with the redeemed of every people group over the course of history. It is beautiful beyond description. Now, we didn't read the rest of chapter 21, but it talks about the splendor of the nations. It talks about the, the jewelry and the streets of gold. But let me say, as C.S. Lewis says, that doesn't sound that very interesting to you. Listen, the writer's doing the best job he can. 
Try to explain, uh, you know, the internet to your dog, right? I mean, how far are you going to get? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being serious, right? I'm not saying I'm a dog. I'm just saying, comparatively speaking, you would say, that's a waste of your time. So you have to speak to what you can say. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Listen, Paul, Paul will quote um, the book of Isaiah, 1 Corinthians 2. He said this, same point I'm making. The eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, neither it has entered into the heart and mind of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. He's saying, I'd love to tell you about heaven, but the best I can do is streets of gold because you don't have the imagination. You don't have the capacity. But a new world is coming that is beyond your imagination. And, be, and it's, go, you're, it's going to be, you know, we talk, listen, the Sistine Chapel, Beethoven's Fifth, the iPhone. They're going to be like a three-year-old's crayon drawing compared to the human flourishing that's going to happen in heaven. Psalm 1611, written 3,000 years ago under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, which is what we just learned about in heaven, where we see God face to face, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. What does that mean? I have no idea what it means. But let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the very best of this world times two. That's what some of us think. It's like C.S. Lewis said, if your friends think heaven's sitting around playing the harp, tell them they're not a very serious person and don't pick up a book if you're not willing to get serious with it. Okay? It's not the best of this world times two. The eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, nor does entered into the, the, the mind of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. I would be willing to say, maybe I'm wrong, that the analogy of trying to explain the internet to, to a dog is actually a smaller gap between trying to explain heaven to you and me. You don't have the language for it. You don't have the capacity for it. Okay? There are what? You know, uh, how many um, dimensions? Four, Sam? Is that four? Is there four dimensions? You know, I've heard someone say in heaven, there's hundreds of them. In other words, guys, we, we, we haven't scratched the surface. That's what heaven is about. But beyond the beauty, beyond the fellowship, beyond the freedom from suffering, listen, most importantly here, is the unveiled fellowship that we will have with God himself. I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. You're saying, Rob, you, always, you always say that's true. What do you mean God is, is going to in the future be with his people and be their God and they will be his children? Isn't that true today? Yes and no. It's true that God is in this room. It's true that the spirit of God is in the world. It's true that God is in you in a manner of speaking. If you're a Christian, you're born again, you have the spirit. But is it true in the same way it will be true? No. Because even the best of us are clothed in humanity and clothed in sin. And you see, quoting from 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a glass darkly. It's a fancy way of saying you see what you see, but you don't see at all. But in this day, you will see it all. We look at people like Isaiah, chapter 6, who's in the presence of God, the third heaven. He's shaken like a, uh, you know, uh, like he's the lion on the Wizard of Oz. Get me out of here. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. What is he trying to say? He's saying, listen, I can't handle being in the presence of a holy God because of my sin. It's weighing me down. I'm feeling the judgment. Get me out of here. John chapter one, the book of Revelation. He has a vision of the glorified Jesus. What happened? Does he, does he say, you know, uh, let's have a cup of uh, coffee together? No. He says he fell on the ground as a dead man. Why? Because of the overwhelming power of the holiness of God. But here, when the curse is lifted, you'll be able to look to God face to face like you're sitting, like you're having a cup of coffee with your friend or your spouse, right? You will be able to stand in the presence of God and endure the power and presence like ever before. As Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with God, we will live with God's presence forever. 1 John 3, 2. Listen carefully to these words. Dear friends, this is a book he wrote before he had this vision. Now we are children of God. We're Christians, okay. And what we will be has not yet been made known. Where's this all going? I don't know. But we know that when Christ appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You say, don't you see him today as he is? No, you don't. You see through a glass darkly. I recommend that you get after it, but you don't see it like you're going to see it then. I will be their people, and they will be my God. And you look him right in the face. I got a text Sunday, as did a handful of friends of mine, from a mother friend. And this friend said, you're never going to believe it, what happened. It's been surreal. I just found out I had a younger sister. This friend of mine is roughly my age. I just, some of you have had this experience, I just found out I have a sister. And not only was that amazing, but in this text was a photograph of this sister who if you didn't get that text and you were one of these people in the text, you would have said, absolutely, that's a picture of our friend. I mean, it's not always true in these stories, right? But this picture looked exactly like literally a slightly younger version of our friend. Imagine that experience. I said, wow, what was that like? And she said, at first it was very confusing, but then it went from confusion to kind of elation. And I said, wow. And then she said later, a few days later, this is probably within the last week or so, we got the text Sunday as a catch-up. She said, I did a FaceTime. I said, what was that like? She said, well, of course, my sister, um, all she wanted to talk about was her dad, my dad. There was all these questions. Makes sense. But she said, I said, what was it like? She goes, well, I was listening to her and, and I you know, did my best, but while she was talking, I was just looking at her. And I, as I looked at her lips, I said, those are my lips. As I looked at her smile, I said, that's my smile. As I looked at her eyes, I said, those are my eyes. What I'm saying to you, friends, is the heart of eternity is that kind of experience with God. It's to know him face to face, to quote Paul, to fully know as I am fully known. This is the heart of love. And those of you who are married, whether you just had a honeymoon and, you're, and you, can't, you, you can't imagine it getting any better, or you've been married for 30 or 40 or 50 years and, you, and you, you've reached a depth of love that's wonderful and beautiful, let me tell you something. It's a three-year-old with a crayon compared to what being fully known is gonna be when you're looking at Jesus Christ face 
to face. A new world is coming, and it's beyond your imagination. Last thing, as we get ready for this, okay? At the center of the new world is Jesus the King. There's so much I could say here if I had time. Let me say this. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That word's used four times in these eight verses. Then he said, write this down. It's important. And he said to me, listen carefully, it is done. Same thing he said on the cross. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now there's no doubt that the person on this throne, because Trinity's a hard concept, is not God the Father, in a manner of speaking. It's Jesus Christ, because he said in John chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now watch this, verse 6. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Here's what's so amazing. In the middle of this unbelievably, wildly imaginative, poetic vision of heaven, streets of gold and all the rest, right? He breaks the moment of prophecy, right? And says, by the way, you want to be saved? You know? Listen, I want to give you one more chance. I just want to remind you, first century, 21st century, that this is coming to a cataclysmic end. But I want to say one more time to whoever is thirsty. I give the water of life without cost. And if that didn't do it, just in case you were asleep, he's saying to his congregation, let me give you ch- chapter 22, verse 17, almost the very, very last words of the Bible. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of life, of the water of life, Come, he's saying, listen, before I finish this text, before it's over, before we say the last amen, I want to say one more time to those of you living on this side of history. Come. So let me say this, friends. Uh, I don't know where you are today uh, listening to me. Maybe you've been to church a thousand times in your life. I don't know. And maybe you have many reasons of why you'd say, you know, whether I don't want to cloud surf and play harps. I grew up in a, in a, in a church with a, you know, that, that was overbaked and, 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 and judgmental. You know, uh, you know uh, my lifestyle is, is, is uh, you know, everyone picks on me. Whatever the case may be, whatever kind of bad theology you may have had, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God says, listen, I don't care what you've done. You don't go to hell for cheating on your taxes. You don't go to hell for cheating on your wife. You go to hell if you go there. The doors of hell are locked from the inside because you've said no to the offer of the forgiveness of God's grace. He says one more time, the spirit and the bride. What's the requirement to be a Christian? Whoever is thirsty, let them come. Okay, let them come. That's all you need to do today. Is the day ever going to come when the, the offer will be gone? Yes, it will be. But today it's here. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. You can do that today in the quiet of your own heart. Instead of taking this, okay, 
receive what these elements represent. The, the bread, his broken body. The cup, his shed blood. Receive them. But let me say this as we get ready. Now to those in this room who are Christians, like myself. There's an invitation for you here too. Two times in this passage, as I said, at the center of the new world is Jesus the King. Two times, this is not a mistake. It says, and the voice from the throne said. It's on purpose. The voice from the throne. Who sits on the throne? And in the sixth verse, it's identified as Jesus, the elephant. The person who sits on the throne is the Lord. Right? The Lord. The Lord of your life and the Lord of my life. And if this is to be understood to be true, it says to me right here, right now, March the 6th, 2022, Jesus Christ is on the throne. Right? All power, all glory belong to him. He's on the throne of the world. Is he on the throne of your life? As Jason was saying an hour, half an hour, 45 minutes ago. Is he on the throne of your life? Or are your fears or your anxieties or your worries? Okay. This is an opportunity for you, an invitation for you. He was thirsty, she was thirsty. Let them come and drink freely of the grace. Experience a deeper lordship in Jesus. How much are you time of your life are you wasting being anxious about things, being worried about things that are not your business to worry about? You're wasting. The pitches are coming by. And God is saying, oh, my friend, oh, my son, oh, my daughter, if you had any idea where this is all going, I prepared a place for you. It's beyond your wildest imagination. Nothing in this world compares by a hundred miles. Take a breath. Take, a, take heart. And make me the Lord of your life. Give up these things that are keeping you back. Because you're going to a place that's beyond all imagination. Okay? He graces us with the knowledge of then, the future, so that we can know how to better live now. Amen? You can take this top transparent piece off. And all we're doing when we share in communion, many of you know this, is we're, we're, not, re we're not becoming Christians again. We're opening ourselves up to a fresh work of the gospel. That's what this is. This represents the gospel. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. Did his disciples get it? No. Then. And he broke it. It's the Passover meal. They'd done it 20 times already in their lives, probably. And they took the bread and he broke it. And he said, now let me change the rules. I'm making all things new. I'm going to tell you the Passover meant this forever in your history. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, but it means something new now. This bread represents my body. What? Which will be broken for you. Amen? Let's eat together. When supper was ended, he peeled back the foil. He took the cup, part of the Passover meal, he said, this cup, I'm going to give this new meaning too, it represents, or it will from this day forward, it will represent not the blood that was put over the doorposts 
in Goshen at the Exodus. It's what it represented for a thousand years. But what it's going to represent is my blood that will be shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? God takes sin seriously. God takes evil seriously. So they're going to drive nails through my hands. They're going to pierce my side and put a crown of thorns on my head. They're going to beat me senseless. Isaiah 52 says his face could not be, you couldn't even tell he was a human being anymore. I'm going to do that for you. My blood's going to be shed for you so that you can have the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. God and Father, we love you. We thank you for this time. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us, be present in this moment, in this auditorium, in these homes. We open our hearts to you. We open our minds to you. We open our lives to you. Starting with this pastor, Lord, I'm thirsty. I come. I long for a greater experience of your lordship in my life. Hear our prayers. Heal our hearts. Heal, heal this broken world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, friends. It's been great to worship with you today. Watch this very brief video. See you next Sunday.